Welcome to the Couch to Belly podcast, episode 12. For our final episode, we are going to talk about ballet in America. Much like the British ballet tradition, dance in America owes its existence to many key figures in dance companies. So today, we're going to focus on how ballet was introduced to the United States, a defining event that sparked ballet's development from the 1930s onwards, and the resulting sixth major methodology for teaching ballet, the Balanchine Method. While the United States has homegrown forms of dance, like modern, jazz, tap, and break dancing, ballet first came to the country like everything else that was from Europe. It was an import. By 1850, the United States had built over 9,000 miles of interconnected railroads, and as early as the mid-19th century, Romantic-era ballerinas like Fanny Essler were able to perform across the country for audiences big and small. Much later, Diaghilev's Ballet Russe and the two spin-off companies that formed after Diaghilev's death would perform whistle-stop tours across the United States during both world wars. These tours were formed in no small part to whisk Europe and Russia's great dancers away from the Nazi invasion. But an unanticipated consequence of this search for safety was that audiences were introduced to ballet all across America. If you can think back to the Diaghilev podcast episode, you might remember me mentioning the choreographer George Balanchine. George Balanchine was born in 1904 into a musical family in St. Petersburg, where he later began his studies at the Imperial Ballet School. He choreographed his first piece, La Nuit, at the age of 16, and three years later, in 1923, he helped establish an experimental ballet troupe called the Young Ballet. The choreography that Balanchine created during this time was considered avant-garde and controversial by the Russian authorities, and living conditions for the artists at the Mariinsky had become untenable in the wake of the Russian Revolution. In 1924, Balanchine fled to Germany with his wife, Tara Majeva, where they received a telegram from Diaghilev inviting them to come to Paris and audition for the Ballet Russe. Meanwhile, across the ocean, Lincoln Kirstein, a wealthy American ballet aficionado, had a dream. He wanted to create a ballet company in the United States, one that would uniquely embody the American spirit. Kirstein had been following Balanchine's work since he created Apollo for the Ballet Russe in 1928. And after Diaghilev's death, he formulated a plan to bring Balanchine to the United States. In 1933, Kirstein finally met Balanchine in Paris and made his proposal. Balanchine's famous reply was, but first, a school. From his upbringing in the Imperial Theater, Balanchine knew that a company's success depended on a pool of well-trained dancers to populate it. Kirstein agreed to Balanchine's condition, and the School of American Ballet opened in New York City in 1934. Balanchine created Serenade for this inaugural group of students, the curtain opening on the now iconic image of a sea of young dancers reaching one arm upwards into the light a fitting and aspirational piece of choreography for what was to come. But not right away. 
it would take a few years for the Kirstein-Balanchine vision to come to fruition. Balanchine's groundbreaking ballets were not immediate audience favorites, and a few different ballet troops under Balanchine's direction would be formed only to struggle and fail. During this time, Balanchine made a name for himself choreographing for Broadway shows and Hollywood movies, many starring his second wife and muse, Vera Zorina. Kirstein and Balanchine persevered, and finally, New York City Ballet, a company with staying power, was founded by the pair in 1948. Balanchine is famously quoted as saying, Ballet is a woman, and he had an array of wives, lovers, and muses throughout his life. I've mentioned Tamara Jevra and Vera Zarina, but before Zarina, he also had a long-term partnership with Alexandra Danilova, before marrying his third wife, Maria Talchief, followed by Tanakiel Leclerc, and then an unrequited passion for his final muse, Suzanne Farrell. The physical characteristics and dancing styles of these women would combine to form the ideal Balanchine ballerina, long-legged, thin, cool dancers who approached his work with attack and energy. There is some controversy amongst academics as to whether the Balanchine method of teaching ballet is really a method at all, or simply ballet danced in an affected, specific style. What is certain is that Balanchine dancers move very differently than dancers trained in other methods. Inspired by the rapid pulsing energy of New York City, Balanchine's choreography demands extremely fast footwork, sky-high leg extensions, and a freer, more expressive upper body than older styles. It is fair to say that the curriculum taught at the School of American Ballet prepares dancers to dance Balanchine's repertory, but perhaps does not prepare students to dance the more subtle, romantic, and classical era works. Balanchine's extensive musical knowledge allowed him to dissect scores in great detail and to collaborate closely with composers, most notably with Igor Stravinsky. Mentioned in the Diaghilev episode, Balanchine and Stravinsky collaborated for over 50 years, and they created 39 ballets together. The range of Balanchine's work is also expansive. In addition to choreographing for Broadway and Hollywood, he also choreographed the animated ballet sequences in Walt Disney's Fantasia. He created sleek, plotless, modernist masterpieces like The Four Temperaments, Agon, and Stravinsky Violin Concerto. Performed in practice closed and sometimes known as the leotard ballets, these works stripped away costumes and sets entirely, distilling ballet down to the relationship between dance and music. On the complete opposite end of the spectrum, Balanchine created a beloved version of The Nutcracker in 1954, which would become the first full-length televised ballet in 1958, and it is still performed by New York City Ballet every year during the holidays. After the company was formed in 1948, he would choreograph there for the rest of his life. By the time that Balanchine died in 1983, his choreographic output was so massive that the entire catalog of his creations totaled 425 works. He is remembered as a genius, and his massive creative output 
has led people to draw parallels between him and composer Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Writing after his death, dance critic Edwin Denby said, Balanchine changed the way that we look at dance. Very few people in the history of any art have that kind of impact. Balanchine is undoubtedly the most significant choreographer of the 20th century, and his works are still being performed by companies all over the world. His legacy lives on today at the School of American Ballet and New York City Ballet. That's it, my friends. Thank you for joining me for the 12th and final installation of the Couch to Ballet podcast. It's my hope that this podcast series gave you a glimpse of ballet's rich and exciting history and that you'll continue to explore this beautiful, expressive art form. I promise you there is so much more to learn and uncover, but that's a story for another day. Until we meet again, this is Sarah Duclos signing off.